This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash journal. Terms and conditions apply. Curtis Jones is superintendent of the Bibb County School District in Georgia, and he loves his district. Bibb County is amazing. First of all, it's the home of Otis Redding. It's also the home of the Allman Brothers. So this is where soul music came from. So can you tell us about your school district in Bibb County? So we have a little over 21,000 students. We are 80% African-American, 13% white. We have six high schools, six middle schools. We have one alternative school, one college and career academy, as well as 21 elementary schools. Like superintendents across the country right now, Curtis has been responsible for figuring out what to do with his thousands of students. He's struggled to equip families with technology, put in place a remote learning curriculum, and balance all the needs of his students. And last week, Curtis decided to end his district's school year early, joining superintendents in Texas, New Hampshire, and Nebraska in calling it quits. Today on the show, a conversation with one superintendent about what happened to school this year and what next year could look like. Welcome to The Journal, our show about money, business, and power. I'm Kate Leinbaugh. It's Monday, May 4th. Where are we talking to you today? I am in Macon, Georgia. I'm in my office. So you're not, you're allowed to go to work. I'm allowed to go to work. So I've been coming in about two to three days a week since we started this. My wife would say, why are you going in to do this? podcast with this lady today, you should be at home. Wear your mask. What'd you say to her? Well, yes, dear. (laughs) I mean, yes, dear, but you know, if we're going to say we're really doing school, then I need to show that central office is open. I need to be there physically. I need to have the telephones answered. We need to continue to cut the grass. We got to take care of our buildings. You can't say you're having e-learning and nobody's showing up. Okay, so now let's get to this coronavirus outbreak. Okay. When you started hearing about this virus, did you think it would impact your school district? Not initially. I mean, when we first heard about it, you know, it was overseas. It was something that was happening way over there. It's not going to come. But when they started talking about a pandemic and they started saying that it's starting to spread and it's starting to show up in New York, uh, that was when... I think we've changed our focus and said, you know what, we need to really be prepared for it. Was there a moment when you realized you would need to close your schools? The second week of March is when I told my senior cabinet that we're going to probably close school in two weeks. Start planning now to get ready for that. For some, it was unreal. For some, it was like, yeah, we'll wait and see. For others who had someone who they knew had developed the virus, then it was more real. How did you feel? My mom is 89 years old, and I wanted to make sure I didn't affect her. I called my mom and I said, I'm not going to be able to come see you this week. (laughs) If I do, I'm going to stand outside. One thing I've been able to do is 
lead this district as I want my children and my family to be treated. I have a son who's a teacher. We have grandchildren. I want that school district to take care of my grandchildren the same way I'm going to try and take care of the students here. So in your approach to shutting down schools, what were your biggest concerns? The first concern was what's going to happen with testing? What's going to happen with students who have to get promoted? What's going to happen with those who are getting sick? But I'll be honest, quickly it turned to how are we going to feed our students? So our district is 100% free and reduced lunch. So we feed lunch and breakfast every day of the week. We are now preparing 35,000 meals a day. We were using 50 sites to get food out to different people. It sounds like schools is as much about food and nutrition as learning. At this point in time, it was, because we know that students can't learn if they haven't taken care of their basic needs. They weren't going to be concerned about learning if they didn't feel safe, if they had extra stresses that were on them, and that had to be dealt with. But at the same time, we were still focused on how do we do this e-learning process and make that work. Because if we could make sure they felt safe, the students did, and that they had food and they had shelter, then we could now get them to learn. How did you approach e-learning and remote schooling? What we ended up doing was doing a survey of our parents and finding out who did not have technology, who did not have internet access, and we ended up deciding that we needed to issue about 3,400 devices. We also issued out 750 hotspots to our students as well. In my naive way of thinking, I was going to get all that stuff issued out in two days. It ended up taking about a week and a half. Talk to us about how remote learning went for your district. It ended up being very stressful. We started out thinking that we could do basically e-learning like we did a regular day. Kids were going through five, six classes, you know, class changes, but it didn't work that way. So then we realized maybe you only need to do two subjects a day, rotate those so you're able to do everything in a week's time. But it was still hard because you had parents who were fighting for Internet time. You had students who were fighting for computer time. You had parents saying... I don't know how to do this stuff. I'm not a teacher. This is hard. And students ended up being stressed in different ways. We had students who came back and just said, you know, this is stressful for us. I can't see my teacher. I can't see my counselors. And I had some others who came back with, I now know someone who has the virus. You know, in the past, we would have sent a bunch of counselors out and dealt with that. Now we couldn't do that. So it was stressful and hard. One of the things that remote schooling has exposed is the inequity in students and and teachers' lives. What have some of your most vulnerable students faced with remote learning? So I'm going to put them in several categories. One, we have students with disabilities. And so we had to work hard with our special ed department to ensure that IEPs, our individual education plans for our students, are still being fully implemented. I thought that was going to be the biggest challenge. The bigger challenge ended up being homeless students. Students who come to us, we know that they had issues with having a permanent residence, and we lost track of some of those students. That hurt because the place we could see them was when they came to school. Now that they're not coming to school, now that cell phones are not working, now that the address is not there, we couldn't find some of those students. And so those vulnerable students probably are the ones that lost the most. How many homeless students do you have? We're currently at about 3% of our students are homeless. And how many did you lose track of? Probably about half of them. Probably about half. 
That's the nature of the beast. It is. Do you think you'll find those that you've lost track of? We will. Across the nation, homelessness is just an issue. But because of our laws and because parents want what's best for their kids, they come to school. You know, we were sending buses to places where they were renting uh, long-term. We could pick them up. We could bring them in. They wanted to come to school because that's where food was. That's where their friends were. It gave them a sense of stability. They lost that sense of stability when this occurred. So they will come back. I'm confident of that. The other group of students that we had a challenge with, besides homeless and our special ed students, were just students who are in what I'm going to call deep poverty. Those who were really counting on us for safety, those who were counting on us for food, and who, in some cases, didn't have the internet at home, even though we gave hotspots and devices, just not being used to working with them. So they were trying to learn the technology, implement it, and get it going. And and I had teachers who were stressing. I have some students who I can't get a hold of. I got some who don't want to do the work. And I'll be honest, I had to tell them, focus on the ones who you can. And they were able to do that, but that's not the heart of teachers. Teachers want to take care of those who are falling through the cracks. Yeah, is there a way in which remote schooling furthers the inequities that are already existing? In some ways, it will. Because those who have parents able to help their kids at home, who are able to help them, and well, be an advantage over those that are students who are doing it on their own. If parents have to leave the home to go work and students are left home on their own, we can't have a teacher go over and tap them on the shoulder as they get back to work. Do you think it's fair to continue educating in these circumstances where some students can do remote learning but others can't? I'm not going to say it's fair but I think it's realistic to do that. I don't think you can hold other people back because some students are not able to do as much. Again, I put myself in the situation. If my child had the capability to learn, I want my teachers to do all they can to help them develop as much as they can. For those that do not have that, I hurt, but I don't think I can hold others back because of that. Sorry. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash journal. Terms and conditions apply. This episode is brought to you by Canva. It's time to ditch your old presentation programs at work and try Canva presentations instead. It'll help you create stunning slides in no time. No design experience needed. Just start with one of the designer-made templates or generate something in seconds with AI. Then polish it up and get ready to wow your audience. It's that easy. Nail your next work presentation with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. Tap the banner to learn more. So in this process, you've had to make a lot of hard choices, like closing the schools, canceling prom and graduation. What was it like being the person who had to make those decisions and then communicate them? I'll tell you about when we canceled prom. We did that very early. 
it was the first major decision. We had all of our high school principals in for a semi-virtual meeting. Uh, we were spread out in the boardroom, and I asked high school principals, I said, uh, tell me what you're thinking about prom. This was back in March. And they said, well, we're going to wait and see if we can do it. And I said, no, we're going to cancel prom now. And I said, I need for you to recognize that I don't think we're going to be back in school the rest of the year. I need for you to start thinking about what it's going to be like to do this. And so while I know you want to not cancel prom, I'm telling you, we're going to cancel prom. So I canceled it for all six high schools at that point. We may have been one of the first in the state to do that. And it was like, whoa. And I'll be honest, it was hard. But my belief was that if we didn't do it, we would have continued to go down this path of waiting to the last minute to make decisions and not getting ready. So for me, it was how do I lead this effort to say we're going to change? And I just think that's part of what superintendents and what district office and school boards have to do. Sometimes it's taking a risk. But hopefully if you have open communication and if you've built up trust and if you're transparent, people know at least you're doing it for the right reasons. Uh, they may not agree with you, but hopefully they give you the benefit of the doubt. So at this point, when you canceled prom, you were already aware that you didn't think there would be a resumption of in-class schooling. I did not. But then you made another decision. You decided to close your schools early this year. Talk us through that decision and why. My view was that there comes a point of diminishing returns. And we would have been doing it then for six, seven weeks. And that was, in my view, enough time. And so the question was, what's the best use of the last three to four weeks of school that we have? Should we continue with e-learning or should we do something else? And I wanted to take that as an opportunity to do two things. One, close out the school year well. I just didn't believe that if it took me a week and a half to issue these devices, I could get them back in in three days. So we wanted to take the month of May to be able to set up a safe way for devices to be turned back in, for schools to be cleaned, for teachers to come in and clean out classrooms, and to do that in a organized, safe way. Okay, so when does your next school year start? The middle of August. Do you think it will be in-classroom learning? I think it's going to be a combination of in-classroom learning and e-learning. If we do this right, my teachers will be able to take a classroom of 28. 14 kids will be able to learn online. 14 will be in the classroom, but they all will be with the teacher at that particular time. That's something we have not seen before, but that's the goal that I have for our technology department, our curriculum department. So we can basically cut the number of kids in school in half and still have teachers in front of students and interacting with them on a daily basis. I'll be honest, what we're doing is hoping for the best, but planning for the worst. Uh, and to me, that'd be the worst. So the goal is half and half? The plan is, if we have to do e-learning and nobody can come, we'll be ready. If some can come, but we've been told by the CDC and others, you have to spread out. Now I can have maybe half the kids stay home and half come. That may become one of the solutions. But I need all kids to have 180 days of learning. So that's what we're trying to figure out. Will you prioritize in-school learning for kids who don't have support at home? It makes sense to do that. I have to think about it. And the reason I say that is, again, it gets back to this issue of being equal is not being equitable, but 
I'm not sure some parents are going to say, because I am able to do this, why are you putting my child at a disadvantage by not letting my child be in front of the teacher uh, as much as others? So in schooling, we have these values that we have to deal with, and, and they compete against one another. And one's not right or wrong, but you have to balance equality with equity. Has that been one of the main stresses of this moment? It has been. In my household, my wife's an educator, my son, my mom's a retired educator, and there are conversations about how can you keep doing e-learning when some kids don't have access? You're creating the gaps. It's going to be harder for you when you come back. But I recognize that at some point we have to come back, and at some point we have to be able to recognize that school is going to happen in the fall in one way or another, and there takes planning to make that happen. And we're the ones who are being asked to do that. I asked my uh, fourth grader what I should ask you. Uh Uh-oh. Yeah. And he said, will I ever get to see my friends again? (laughs) And he said, because it will never be the same. We'll never, next year, it'll be a different class. He's right. That's what happens with our fifth graders. We have a ceremony at all of our elementary schools where fifth graders are celebrated as they move from the elementary and go to middle. Same thing from middle to high. And we have a time where seniors will go back to their elementary schools and middle schools and walk the halls in their caps and gowns showing this is what the future holds. Those experiences are lost. My hope, though, is that we will learn from this experience and come out of it better. And I think that's going to happen, too. Will these kids, the students, ever get this time back? This time won't come back. I mean, once you graduate, you've graduated. Once you've missed your prom, you've missed your prom. When I was a high school principal, I was fond of telling the kids that when I graduated, the person sitting beside me was my wife. So I said, look to the person on your left and right and see who you're going to marry. And they would laugh. (laughs) But that experience of graduation is the first part of looking forward to your 10th year reunion or your 20th year reunion. That's not going to come back, and they won't get a chance to say goodbye like we did. That has been lost. They would make it up in different ways. Their class reunions may become more important to them than they were to you or me. And they'll be united in it. That's right. This will become their experience. Superintendent Jones, thank you so much. Thanks for joining us. And thank your wife for letting you out the door. (laughs) Thank you so much. Glad to be with you. That's all for today, Monday, May 4th. The Journal is a co-production of Gimlet and The Wall Street Journal. Special thanks to Tonnell Hobbs for her reporting. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow.